Rough Trade is giving away a third of the first three months of the Rough Trade Club plus new music membership exclusively to 101 Part-Time Jobs listeners. Become a member of Rough Trade Club New Music and you'll receive the Rough Trade Album of the Month straight to your door every month on an exclusive vinyl pressing with bonus material. Club members have received exclusive pressings of albums from Sufjan Stevens, Sprints, The Last Dinner Party, English Teacher and Over Mono, just to name a few, this past year alone. Sign up using the promo code CLUB101POD and you'll get Rough Trade's Album of the Month, Camera Obscura's Look to the East, Look to the West for a third of the usual price. By signing up, you'll be getting Rough Trade's exclusive issue of the album on opaque purple in a gatefold sleeve plus a bonus CD containing five demos. Don't want the album of the month but still want all the benefits? Sign up to the standard tier using Club 101 Pod and you'll still get the first month free. You'll also get free shipping on all orders, 10% off at the bar and on secondhand vinyl in store and exclusive access to sold out Rough Trade events. So don't hang around. Head to roughtrade.com slash club and sign up with the code CLUB101POD. That's CLUB101POD and claim money Money off Rough Trade's album of the month today. This offer is for UK residents only. Do you play in bands? I did for the longest time. And I wish that I knew that DistroKid was a thing. I don't even think it existed back then. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. When you get DistroKid, you can see a DistroKid bank and withdraw your earnings. You get notified when you've earned royalties and you can withdraw via the app. And you can even check your streaming stats on Spotify Spotify and Apple. Get 30% off your first year on DistroKid by going to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. 30% off for your first year. That's not bad. We know it's a tough world out there. Why don't you make it easier for yourself? And to get 30% off that free year as an artist where you get 100% of your royalties and earnings, go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. All right, stay with me. I'll be right back after this. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
yo, 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 yo. You're listening to 101 Part-Time Jobs Podcast. My voice is that of me, Giles Bitter, and this is the last of the month of Hassle Records interviews. And we're speaking to Wes. I'm speaking to Wes, who is the head honcho of the record label. I'm going to ask him all about how he started the label, the bands he's worked with, why he works with them, what their general vibe is. I love the way they don't really have a business plan. That's my kind of jam. If you haven't been paying attention, all this month I've had episodes with hassle-related bands, including Press Club, Brutus, Four Years Strong, and Tubelord. So if you've got some catching up to do, you know where to go. Thank you very much, Hassle Records. It's their 15th anniversary this month. They're doing a bunch of represses on some of their incredible back catalogue, and you can find all that at their website, hasslerecords.com. East London's signature brew have been brewing music-inspired beers since 2011. They've made collaboration beers with Mastodon, with Idols, with Slaves, Sports Team recently. And you can go onto their website, signaturebrew.co.uk, and get 10% off all their orders by using 101 Podcast as a coupon at checkout. Okay, thank you very much for listening. As always, if you want to rate and review and subscribe, that's the only thing that gives this show legs. If you like this podcast enough to do that, please tell a friend. Here's Wes from Hassle Records. Go well. Wes, thank you so much for, for, for chatting to me on, on 101 Part-Time Jobs. No worries. Good to, good to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> As we just said, I was saying how it's, this, this podcast has turned into more now, like more a free-flowing conversation about, you know, what you're up to. And I guess, I guess what goes on sort of behind the scenes and, and you know, like I, th- I think there's so much work in music that goes on that you that no one ever sees. Sure. You know, for example, when a you know when a record comes out, you know, you have no idea how the the hours the band or the label or the manager management put in. So, I mean, how how have the last few months been for you in in lockdown? Has that how much has that changed you? Uh, well, it's it's weird because when this all started kicking off at work, we all looked at each other and said, well what are we going to do for the next you know, few months or whatever? It's going to be really quiet. It's been, actually, it's been completely the opposite, we found, because um, we've had to try and find ways of keeping things going. Um, so, you know, with, with all the shops being shut and no touring happening, so there's no tour sales and no promotion, that side of what we do has actually kind of disappeared for, for a short time. But um, what we have found is that we've been talking to all the bands to make sure everybody's okay and functioning okay and you know doing okay mentally health you know mental health wise and then we've we've carried on with a couple of releases that we had coming out to make sure they came out properly and then we've we've continued to plan for the next year to two years and I think you're probably aware it's our 15th anniversary so we've been doing a lot of work on that so we've actually ironically enough we've been really busy so (laughs) and in those in those 15 years, there must you must have seen that paradigm shift of of making money from records and then, you know, a dip in that, a dip in CD sales. And then am, would, would I be right in saying that people started realising that vinyl could be like a sustainable business model a few years ago? Yeah, 100%. I mean, vinyl never went away 100%, but it certainly became quite rare for some genres. I mean, you know, probably 10 or 15 years ago, we weren't actually releasing albums on vinyl. Like the first We Are The Ocean album, we didn't put out on vinyl. So, you know, that that's something that has grown and been very useful for small companies and bands like us because um, it's it's a good form of income, you know. Um, but also I think I think a piece of vinyl is is great, isn't it? It's a it's an amazing piece of work if you think about it compared to what you pay twenty pounds for a piece of vinyl. 
in London, three beers is six quid, you know. So I think actually I've still got vinyl that I bought when I was 10 years old. So it stays with yeah. you for the rest of your life. So so that I think that's really good. Uh, in terms of the shift, yeah, I mean, when we first started the label, it was pretty much all CD. Um, and, of course, it's maybe 1%, 2% CD now, so it's been compl- it's a complete change. So, uh, But, you know, streaming's come through and, well, it's not making us rich. It's doing okay. So, um, bit of vinyl, bit of streaming, bit of CD. You know, we, we don't do too bad. And vinyl and CD are obviously so different in the way they're packaged, which means all the work that goes into it. I mean, did that change a lot for you? Did did you did you sort of have some some lessons to learn? You know, are there any stories from that shift where you know maybe you you did something uh, that you wouldn't do again? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, look, we've we've made certain formats that have come out too expensive with gold leaf on the on the on the cover and stuff like that. So we've certainly done oh, wow. things like that in the past. Um, <laughs> but we're very careful with our costs now because it's such a tough business to actually make a living in. Um, but having said that, we do we do really care about what the record looks like as well as sounds like. So we are very very aware that we like the artwork to be great. You know, we'd like the packaging to be really really good. You know, we don't. We never want to be seen to be cutting corners, so we're we're really focused on the you know how the physical product looks compared as well as the actual music itself. It's really important, you know. It's part of the it's part of the art piece, I think. Yeah, hundred percent. And so the you know the label starting up fifteen years ago. You you were working at a, a a label before that, weren't you? Yeah, I used to work for it's an Australian independent called Mushroom Records. Um, in the mid nineties, they decided to set up a European office, so I joined them quite early on and help them set up a European office and um, based in London. And at first we just worked with loads of uh, pretty not so, such great Australian acts. But then we started signing bands, you know, from Europe and America. And we signed, um, we had big success with a band called Garbage. Yeah, uh, of course. I mean, that was, that was very, very big for us. That's huge. Yeah, it was huge. Yeah, we did really well, actually. Um, you know, but we also signed bands like the Wild Hearts, worked with the Wild Hearts. Um, great. We had a label called Infectious, so we worked with Ash, My Vitriol, um, band called Zero Seven, and then we signed uh, Muse, and um, uh, we did really well with Muse, obviously, because they've become one of the biggest bands in the world now, so um, wow. put their first yeah. albums out. Muse and Garbage, specifically what I'm talking about, are, are, are two of the huge names. Wild Hearts also have a very special place in in my heart. Yeah. Did you know, Did you know? was there any indication that they were going to sell a lot of copies of their records? Well, Garbage was an interesting one because you had three guys that were producers, of course, Butch Big produced Nirvana and Smashing Pumpkins and Soul Asylum yeah. and bands like that. And in my experience to that point, I hadn't really been involved with producers that made good records, as in as artists. They were good to make records for bands, but then they, when they become artists, I hadn't really come across a producer that had made a good record. So I was quite sceptical. But then the demos came in for the first four songs, which were Only Happy When It Rains, Val, Queer, and one other. I can't remember what it was. Oh, I can't remember. But anyway, um, and the songs were amazing. And of course, Shirley Manson was amazing, still is. And, um, yeah. you know, don't get me wrong, it wasn't easy with that band because they were slightly older. But, um, right. you know, we put Val out on a seven-inch only at first. And we, we, we Steve Lamack got behind it and it kind of, it built from there, really. It was, um, yeah, it was really good. Um, and then Muse was difficult because nobody really liked them at first. Um, 
<laughs> really? Yeah, with the, the press, that is, not the fans. The press didn't like yeah. them. Yeah. Wow. The enemy used to hate them. And um, <laughs> But the thing with Muse was they're an extraordinarily good live band. And um, we toured a lot. Skunk and Nancy, I mean, Reef, God. We did, we did every tour. And over a two-year period, you know, we ended up selling a lot of records in that first album, and uh, which meant we put the second album in at number two, and it, you know it went platinum and all that sort of stuff. So, um, but it was a, it was a three to four year process. It was it was difficult. Yeah, speaking of the process, I mean, I wonder uh, people my age. I'm in my late twenties. You know, for for most of my life, playing in bands has been a, a thing over the internet. You know, first it was MySpace, and then it you know it now it's just transgressed into into all sorts of different formats. And, you know, for example, Lil Peep, for example, I'm not sure if you've seen his documentary, but on Netflix, it was, it was so mad to see someone, you know, his career started on SoundCloud. And I just wonder, how, were you using like the postal service to get these demos from, from garbage? Oh, yeah. <laughs> We're talking, you know, 15 years before that probably. Yeah, no, completely. I mean, the internet didn't really exist then. I mean, it kind of did, but not much. Um, so yeah, it was a completely different way of doing everything. I mean, we used to send out for a promo, we'd send out a thousand CD, CDRs or even tapes at one stage. We'd be, you know, so it's a completely different way of doing things. We'd be sending out physical photos of bands. Um, so it's completely changed. Wow. You quite see how, uh, you see quite often, you know, people are posting throwback pictures of like, you know, their old like sort of contact sheets, you know, it's like almost like yeah. a postcard picture. Absolutely. Yeah. I love seeing those. I kind of like those things still. Yeah, totally. And, and so what was your, I mean, this is, you're the perfect person to have on this podcast really, because you know, it, it it's, you, you know, usually I have artists, but you know, this is your full-time job and, and your presumably your full-time hobby. Um, but where, where were you as a, as a teenager? What kind of jobs led you into, into record label work? Well, I mean, I was in, I got into music when I was about ten or eleven, and um, it's the same kind of genre. Stock. I'm still into it now, you know. And um, that was very at my school. There was a big tribe of us that liked this kind of music, so we used to hang out together. And it was that, that usual thing where you grow up with a group of mates and you end up going down the pub together and all that sort of thing. But jobs wise, I um, when I was at university. I did camp, uh, did work America. Yeah. So we would go to America for four months in the summer. And um, I, um, the job I got was with Tower Records on Sunset Boulevard. Wow. Yeah, and I worked, I worked as a shop assistant on Sunset Boulevard. And um, it was unbelievable because it was this store just near Beverly Hills where all the stars used to come into. So all the bands used to come in before they played in LA. So I met, <laughs> I've got a sign copy of Michael Jackson thriller because I met Michael Jackson. Wow. Yeah. Um, Tell us about that. Well, I used to work, because America is America, when they had all the big record stores, the record stores were open until one in the morning. So I used to work from three in the afternoon to one in the morning. That was my shift. Wow. All the bands used to come in from seven o'clock onwards. And um, one night the store manager said to me, oh, can you close the store because Michael's coming in? And I'm like, oh. Michael who? Oh, well, it's Michael Jackson, you idiot. You are fucking shitting me. So anyway, so I was like 20 at the time. So um, we, we closed the store and sure enough, Michael Jackson came in and did an hour's worth of shopping. No, no, there's no public, no security, just him. 
And uh, I hate to say that he did have a young boy with him, which, yeah, that's true. (laughs) He had a young boy with him? He did, yeah, a 13-year-old boy with him. That was no security, nothing. Wow. And and so you were there sort of flicking, you know, putting putting stuff on the shelves? No, none of the staff were allowed in the shop floor when he was in the shop. But he did sign autographs, so we were allowed to get a copy of whatever we wanted out of the rack and then get him to sign it, and he signed a copy of Thriller for me. Wow. Yeah, I've still got it. That, that's incredible. Yeah, but I mean, that's, I, met, that's... I met loads of bands, like my heroes, like James Addiction, Soundgarden, Aerosmith, all those bands used to come in and shop in there. Wow. And here's another, and fact, to... here's another fact from that store. Rivers from Weezer used to work on the same shift as me, and I became good friends with him. Rivers was working the same time as you? Yep. Yeah. And he did he did the new age section, and I used to do a lot of classical stuff. And uh, we became good friends, and used to go out drinking together before he way before he was a he was a bass player then, and he had a mohawk. <laughs> well, I've, I've I've had Matt Sharp on this podcast a couple of months ago, right? And it was it was fascinating to find out about where you know those two lived together way before Pat and and Rivers started Weezer. But you know Matt Sharp wasn't even you know he was aware that. Rivers played guitar, but Weasel was basically his first band. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's incredible. I mean, because I talked about forming a band with him because we were both bass players at the time. Uh, We we talked about forming a band with two basses and all this crap. But anyway, I went back to the UK and I kind of lost touch with him because, um, you know, it was the days before the internet. I haven't met him a few times since, but, um, yeah, it was uh, quite an interesting time. Did that give you a kind of impetus to like work in music well i kind of already wanted to because um i was so into being in band and music just i didn't although i was doing an engineering degree i didn't really really want to be an engineer so Mm. you know i um it kind of just sealed the deal really and what happened when you finished your uni degree well i went to a marketing company and was doing really crap market research i was trying to get into a record company so um a friend of mine or a friend of a friend ran a distribution company called Total Records and they needed somebody to do telesales for a month. So I went and did that for a month and that's literally on the phone selling records to shops. And um, they used to do things like Mr. Blobby and really terrible music, but it was a good it was a good learning curve to sell records. You would ring up, say, what, Smiths or Woolworths? Well, at the time it was mainly independents and HMVs because those things were centrally bought. Hmm. But you would literally call up, well, I think Dan Carter mentioned this. I, I became a sales rep after that for a company called Rough Rough Trade Marketing. And I used to sell records to Dan Carter. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, I used to go to his shop on a Thursday and literally buy a load of apple pie from the local baker and we'd talk about music and sell, sell records to him. So um, Amazing. Yeah, it was a good – that was the best job in the world because you get a car, they pay all the petrol – you talk about records all day and they pay you. And I've got to ask, you know, was it all right money? Like in terms of, you know, sort of the living wage of, you know, the realistic living wage of, of being in London? Well, I used to do, because I was a car sales rep, so I used to drive around to shops all over the southeast. So I was based in Guildford at the time, um, which is slightly cheaper, but no, the pay was crap to answer your question. Really? Yeah, that's why I left because it was the money was terrible. <laughs> right. So I, I think it's quite easy, and I, I'm guilty of it as well, of just thinking, you know, oh, there's no money in music now, but there was, you know, that that time ago. Yeah, no, I mean, that job didn't pay well. I mean, you, 
the plus side was you did get a car and all your petrol paid for, um, which is kind of a big cost, isn't it? So, but it just didn't pay that well, you know. But it was, I still enjoyed it, you know. I was young, and you get to hang out and talk about records all day. I mean, that's what that's what yeah, we do with our friends, right? Well, the good thing then was that that job was it wasn't just you know heavy stuff; it was a lot of dance stuff. And although I didn't really know, and I still don't know much about dance music, I had to learn quite quickly the difference between trance and house and garage and, you know, all that sort of, you know, I had to make myself learn about what yeah. trance record and that kind of thing. I mean, I still don't really know, to be honest, but I had to try and learn. Did you get, did you get into that, that kind of music? No, I mean, I, I don't mind stuff like the ambient stuff and the warp stuff and orbital and bands like that sort of thing, but I'm not into you know, house music or anything. I don't really, I'm not into it. A slight tangent here, but I mean, it makes me think of like that, that music is such a, to me, it's such about the experience, you know, it's, it's the raves and similarly to, you know, rock gigs, you know, there's, there's such a primal instinctual feeling there. And, and, and like, you know, what did it feel to you that gigs were different back then to, to how they were, you know, before COVID? I still always had a, I've always really, really enjoyed going to gigs from my first one way back to, you know, going to see bands that I really like or bands that I'm working for, you know, I still really enjoy the experience of it. And I haven't really seen a sea change in the excitement of that whole, that that experience of being in a room with a load of people really enjoying that kind of entertainment. Mm. Hasn't, that hasn't changed for me at all. Who knows right. what it would be like after COVID? I have no idea. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, that in terms of what, what you'd see on like a merch stool, I mean, that must have all, all like sort of been a natural interest for you. Yeah, well, look, I mean, the whole merch thing for bands live now is it's so important for them to survive. So, you know, years back, it, the merch stand was a couple of T-shirts that were too, too expensive and maybe a programme. And now it's, you know, good T-shirts, hopefully a good price and, you know, decent other things, bits of merch, plus also vinyl and CDs and whatever else, you know. You say programs, as in sort of mail order sheets? No, like, you know, they, they st- I think they still do them at the big gigs, but because I don't buy them because they're so expensive, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they are. You go to O2 and they're still selling 30 quid programs of like from that tour. You don't see them so much on the on the bands that are doing smaller venues, but you do see it at the O2 size venue still. I saw Pearl Jam a year or two ago, and I have to say I was, I was pretty disappointed really? at the O2. What were you disappointed? What, what, what disappointed you about it? Uh, I mean, I mean, obviously they're they're a band that don't exactly do much of a of a stage show, which is great. Don't get me wrong, but then in a venue like that, when you when you don't have like a huge, you know, three massive, you know, eighteen wheelers full of lighting rigs, it just looks so stark. Especially those seats behind the stage, you know. Did they have any screens? No screens. What, in the O2? Yeah, I mean, they must have had screens at the back, but I was, you know where the sort of press, uh, where oh, the sort of guest list yeah, yeah, is? Yeah. Like, from where I was sitting. But um, but anyway, I mean, that's 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 it now. I mean, my golden year of going to gigs was going to the Astoria and the Mean Fiddler. Yeah, no, I get that. The Astoria, I think the music scene for a lot of development bands has been completely changed because of that. And the Astoria was probably the best venue in the world, I reckon. In terms of you know, you could get five hundred people in there, or, or sold out of two thousand. It still felt great um, because that venue's gone. That that size venue doesn't really exist in London, does it? I can't think of anything that replicates it because I don't. Coco's just too big, isn't it? Well, Coco's got those four or five layers, isn't it? I don't really like. And then you've got the Forum, which 
hasn't got the same feel and it's a bit bigger. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, the LA2 was a great venue on Beneath It as well, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I think back to that now and I think back of, you know, queuing up around the corner to Soho Square and it all, it all feels like a dream now. Yeah, do you know what? I think you're probably right. I think I think it's has affected the excitement behind gig because being in the queue with 2,000 other people that, you know, Having had a few beers or whatever it is, you know, is I don't know. That's part of the part of the experience, isn't it? And you make friends there, and, it, and you know, speaking of Daniel Picarta and him meeting you when you, you you're in Reading, did, you must have met so many people just you know through having fun and socialising that you work with now. Well, there's a, there's a bass player called Chris Dale, who is a rock bass player who's played for Bruce Dickinson and bands like that. I met him at the front of the Kiss queue when Kiss were doing a secret show at the Marquee. And I was right. first in the queue and he was second. And we both queued up at four in the morning. And I, he's a good friend of mine because of that since then. Wow, four in the morning? Well, yeah, because I, really, I was a big fan at the time. I'm not so bothered now. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that, that's just amazing. And, I mean, you clearly still got, like, so much love for it, you know. And I don't, I don't mean that as, like, a loaded question or, you know. Because I guess, I guess in your position working in music, it can be – you can be surrounded by people who are quite performative about, you know, like, you know, loving the music and being excited, having to sort of convince themselves to be excited about new music. Has that have, has, does that apply to you? Have you, have you sort of experienced that? Well, no, cause I mean, the, the key for us is we work for ourselves and therefore what that means is we only sign bands we like. So mm. therefore we are excited about them because we actually, we do like who, you know, we're working for. If I, if I was working at a bigger company being told that I had to work for a certain band, you know, we haven't chosen that band. We haven't chosen to work with them. Therefore, you're probably not going to like them as much. You might respect right. them and you might like them, but you're not guaranteed to like them. Also, I mean, all the guys I work with, I mean, I work very closely with Mies and, um, you know, he's a complete music nut still, you know, so he, he's always bringing new stuff to me going, oh, listen to this. You know, he, he's the one that brought Brutus into us and said, look, we've got to work for this band, you know. It's Excellent. I think we're a Belgian band, you know, it's hard to break a Belgian band. And he said, yeah, but it's so good. So we did it and it's, it's getting quite big for us now, you know. And that, yeah, I mean, totally. That's because of his passion, you know. That applies to everybody. Charlie, Paul Tom Hobby, Nigel, um, you know, all of us. We're all the same. And you mentioned We Are The Ocean earlier and, and they're, they're a real kind of um, reference point, I think, for a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, it's a real shame with that band because to me... That, that band could have been, people might laugh at this, but I think they, they could have been as big as the Foo Fighters in terms of the songwriting. I think the songwriting was amazing. It just, you know, I didn't do the fourth album arc, and I think they lost their way. And um, unfortunately, it, they split up. But if they carried on writing songs like they had up until that third album, I think they could have been massive. Powerful songwriting there. Well, Liam's an amazing vocalist, isn't he? Yeah, incredible. You know, the whole, when they split with Dan, that was that was bad. That was that was, you know, that was just difficult. Um, yeah. But I do think the album they made after he went was was brilliant. So I think it's a real shame he didn't quite connect nearly. Were they one of the first bands that kind of transcended for for you? Uh, British bands. I mean, sort of because I know you had like Fallout Boy. Yeah, Brit, the first British bands. Yeah. They were because we did a lot of licensing from the US and we had some, you know, Lex on Fire. Yeah. Was Fallout Boy record. We did Juliet Lewis. So we had some stuff that was doing really well. Brand new, of course. Um, but um, yeah, they were the first British band that started to really, really 
you know, we got Maylist on Radio One. You know, that was a time when Radio One used to play rock music. And was that was that like a um, was that a business model? You, you, you talk about you know importing and, and licensing when you when you started full time hobby and hassle. Were you was that kind of the plan that that was kind of going to be your bread and butter to start off with? Well, there was never really a plan like that. We we just signed bands we liked. It just happened at a time that the US was producing an extraordinary amount of bands that were really really good, and also mm. nobody else in the UK was that interested. So for about two years, we had we were the, we were the go to company. Um, uh, so you know the majors picked up a few things like Newfound Glory. Um, blink but you know we had a lot of the other stuff so um it wasn't a business model it was it's never for us it's never a business model it's always about do we like it and uh you know when i heard that song jude law by brand new i was like what an amazing song you know yeah when I heard unreal stuff i was like wow this is brilliant you know even bands like recover beautiful mistake that didn't get that big they still all those songs are still sound good to me are there any surprise stories from back then? Stuff that you thought would do massive but didn't, or like the complete opposite? Well, we tried to sign My Chemical Romance, and we, I took the band out for lunch. We went for egg and chips, and uh, I took um, Gerard Wayne's brother out. I can't remember if Frank was there at the time. And um, we put the offer in, and the guy who we, we were dealing with in America called me. He said, look, the band really like you, and we really like you, but they're going to sign to this universal imprint. And because um, I think the first album went to a Universal imprint, and they, they, the guys from Universal spent more on their airfare than than my offer. <laughs> so wow, you can you see it as a fan, you know the stark difference between an independent and a major. I mean, how have you? I mean, you talked about how you know you only sign bands that you love, but that that must have been hard over the years, perhaps. Oh yes, yeah, it's, it's difficult because you there's a lot of bands that we we think we would have done a better job on than the major did. But unfortunately, you know, and don't get me wrong, when a band signs to a major, I'm not knocking that because you, you sometimes you have to because you need the money. Mm. And um, also, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of really good people at majors. I'm not, I'm not anti-major. I've worked, a lot of my good friends work at majors. And also, um, you know, I've worked closely with a lot of majors as well on different things. and We still are. So we're not anti-major at all. Um, but what it, what it does say is, you know, we have this amount of money, we will – spend it in this way and if it works great if it grows nicely that's really really good but if it doesn't you know it's, it's difficult so it, the answer is it's really difficult yeah adapting to online i mean that's that's the that's the key isn't it uh 100 um you know we you've got to be really really internet savvy and you know streaming is a good and bad thing in terms of it's good because of accessibility but we all know it doesn't pay that well and unfortunately, rock bands aren't really streaming that big at the minute. So it's it's quite difficult to make tons of money out of streaming or even mm. some money. So, um, you know, we supplement that with the final thing we've talked about and, you know, still do a bit of CD. We do a bit of management. So you've kind of got to do a bit of everything to to stay in the game. I mean, it, it seems like not too long ago when you heard about people signing 360 deals. Yeah, well, we don't do that. You know, we, we, we generally speaking, we do record deals, but we do do some publishing but we'd never say to a band they must do their publishing with us. We'll all say to a band, here's here's a record deal, and in a year or two, let's talk about publishing, and if you want to do it, that's cool, and if you don't, that's cool too. It's also about choice. Is that because it like it also kind of makes things more complicated? Uh, maybe. I mean, I think it's because our main skill set is in 
record, being a record company, yeah, we're not a publishing company really, but we we we're probably better than some actually. But you know, we can do it. Uh, and right. I think we're quite good at management as well because we've been doing it so long. I feel bad about saying that there was a it was a golden era in rock music, and I'm probably I'm saying that more as a more as a fan, you know. And I think you always look through things with a with rose glasses sometimes, don't you? But I mean, obviously, you've done so well. I mean, you, you remain to be one of the most important, you know, guitar music labels in Britain. Absolutely. Yeah, we never really think about it to be honest. You know, we just um, we just work for our bands and we we. We enjoy putting music out, you know. The skill set that you have is that is that always changing. I mean, when you when you started the label, did you? I mean, I presume you, you must have learned a lot of, you know, the, the bread and butter starting points from the label before that you were working out. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You look, every I'm not going to say every day is different, but every week or every month is different in terms of how you have to do things. Um, I remember about 20 years ago, a guy I was working with said he, he said he was leaving. The label he said oh I, I don't feel like I'm learning anymore and I looked at him mm. well, fucking hell you're an idiot because if you're not learning you're not trying to learn because in this job you can learn you know like I say you learn something new pretty much every week so um you ha- you're constantly having to adapt at what point did you decide to sort of go your own way was it because you wanted to do your own thing well because they were, they were selling the company and um it was being bought by Warners so most of the staff were going to go and work at Warner Brothers and I, you know, I didn't fancy working for, you know, my boss signed Paris Hilton, my old boss, and it's just like I don't want to work for somebody like that. I don't want to put her music out because I don't like or respect it. There must have been the temptation there for, for you know, a good wage perhaps. Honestly, no, I didn't want to get I didn't want to get into the system. I didn't want to go to the system. I didn't want to. You know, I wanted to, you know, work for bands like Brand New or We Are The Ocean or or Lonely the Brave, you know? I think it's interesting. I think of people my age and, and younger, I, I went to go work at Festival Republic for a bit. And when I got that job, I was I was jumping for glee, you know? I was like, fucking brilliant. I you know, grew up going to Reading, yeah. love all that. And then as soon as I started working there, you know, I'm not going to badmouth it, but I was like, this is not what I got my... This is not what I thought I was getting myself into, you know? And so I think it must be hard for young people who want to get into independent music that touches us and touches other people and maybe struggle to find a place to start. Yeah, look, it is it. It's a very difficult industry to get into and actually find a way it can pay, you know, pay a decent wage. It is difficult. It's getting, especially in London, where most of the industry is, because London's ridiculously expensive. So, mm. um, yeah, I can appreciate how difficult it is. But you know, there are jobs out there, and if you are, you know, you want to get into it, you know, you're tenacious. I think you know, somebody's got to do these jobs. You know. You don't. If you want to start a label. You don't necessarily have to start the label in London. I don't think anymore. I think you could do it anywhere. No, I mean the the ideas come from the music and the band. In terms of you know, you get a new artist. Like we we've got a new band called Foxjaw, and they're very creative. So that gives us an impetus to be creative as well. So the more creative the band are, the better, really. You know. And I think it's something that I feel like I kind of have a duty to to talk about and that's the the mental well-being and the sort of the 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 health well-being of of bands especially touring bands on their first or second albums where you know pre-covid or post-covid you know they're on the road a lot um they're probably getting 50 quid or 100 quid what's how how do you see that situation i mean you're clearly quite close with the bands you work with and you know do you nurture them is is that something that you that is that you consider a a, a big job of yours? Yeah, 100%. We 
we're very close to our bands to the point where we want them. If a band falls down because it's because um, of problems like that, because of the pressures of touring, that's obviously good for nobody. You know, look at a band like Casey. Casey were about to explode. I mean, literally explode. But they toured so hard for two years, three years, that they burnt themselves out. I didn't know that. Well, yeah, maybe I should have said that. But anyway. Well, that's right. Um, you know, they they you know, they got to a point where they, they couldn't quite see carry that it was worth carrying on, you know. So um so it's our job, part of our job to make sure bands don't don't get to that stage. Otherwise there'll be no bands, basically. I mean that's why you're saying less and less bands get to their third album. Well, I, I think it's it's something that I've kind of realised after 50 episodes of this podcast is that from my experience of being in a touring band and releasing three or four albums is like the, the, the first of all, it's so fucking hard to be in a band, but probably because of B, the dynamic between members and people you're working with, that's, that's, that can be real difficult. You know, there, there are a lot of plates spinning there. Yeah, look, the old cliche used to be bands break up because of musical differences. I actually think that's bollocks. I think 95% of the time, I think bands break up because of money problems and not being able to get on communication-wise. That's the main reason bands break up. Um, I understand the, the communication one rings very true. Yeah, because, <laughs> about, you know, for example, if you have a band where you have one main songwriter, um and you start to have some success, that songwriter will earn quite a bit more than the rest of the band. Is that a good thing? Of course it's not. You know, that's going to put pressure on the band. So yeah. I, yeah. I think this is true, and fair play to Dave Grohl, but I believe he splits everything four or five ways. He, I think he does. I believe he does. So I don't. he doesn't have to do that. Um, you know, I worked for a band when I was at Mushroom, who had real problems because there was one songwriter and nobody else earned any money, you know, it's tricky. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, when, when you're a fan, probably especially when you're maybe a bit younger is, you know, you, you see a band and you don't really think about the differences, do you? You know, you know what the drummer looks like and you know what the bassist looks like and they're as important as the other members. Whereas, you know, in the, in the workings of it, in, you know, in that inner circle, it's, it's not the case, right? Perhaps. Yeah. Well, look, I'll tell you what, you, you're a fan of music like me. I'm sure you've got your favourite bands where you thought a certain lineup, usually the first or second lineup, were the best. You know what I mean? And that, there's a reason yeah. for that. And that's called chemistry. You know, so chemistry between a band is really important. And you might think actually he's not a particularly good bass player. Doesn't matter if he goes, but actually there was a chemistry there that he brought to the band. I mean, a band like Van Halen. I mean, you know, big old rock band like Van Halen. They had a bass player called Michael Anthony. And he was the glue behind that band, and the Van Halen brothers treated him terribly. And, um, you know, it kind of started to fall apart when they started doing that, even though he was, I mean, I say only the bass player. I used to be a bass player, so... Um, yeah. <laughs> um, I think the chemistry between a band is so, so important, not just because of somebody who's the singer or the songwriter. You've got that unit. You know, you're a unit of people, you're a team. And, and if you have your first EP and your first album, that's, that's a huge success. And that's going to be very exciting for the first six months or a year or maybe even longer. But it will get to a point, right, where it becomes a normality. You know, that that's your, that is your kind of job. That is your kind of basic day to day. And, and, and it's always seemed to me like maintaining that level of excitement can become the struggle. Hey, look, I, I didn't get to a bit high level in the band, so I... 
I don't actually know, but I think you're completely right. Um, because it does become your job. And, you know, one one year you might think, oh, I love doing press. And then after you've done press for five or six years, you might, and you've been slagged off a few times, you might think, of, oh, what's I hate doing press. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I toured a bit and you've toured a bit. I mean, touring, the performance side is great. And if you have a good gig, it's good, but the travelling can be really boring and the waiting around is terrible, you know? That's why bands yeah. get really heavily into drinking drugs because they get bored a lot of the time. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I think, you know, that's such a um, a let-on to the, the health of, of people. Yeah, completely. It's part of the whole package and parcel. I mean, one of the ba- I don't want to name my bands in particular, but one of the bands that I work for at the minute, we're now looking at a two-year plan where we tour at certain times and not too much because we're talking about the burnout issues, you know, those kind of things we don't want to happen to them. We're trying to address that way up front. I, I feel like that's maybe unprecedented in a way. Yeah, we, we, we're doing it all the time. I mean, also with some of the bands, we're talking about a 10-year plan. Wow. Well, the reason is, you know, most people want to have some kind of stability in their life after 10 mm. years, don't they? Yeah. So you have to think, okay, if you want to do that, how do we get to that position? And it, it doesn't always mean you're touring in a band all the time because it might mean you've got a some bands have got you have a second job sometimes or whatever it is, you know, because it's difficult. Have you found is there any kind of secret to keeping the spirit alive? I mean, all too often you'll see bands, especially like hardcore bands and punk bands, where they're you know the first EP will be a real fire in a bottle, you know, it'll be it'll fucking rip, and then and then album two just maybe doesn't have that spirit. Is is there a way that you could you you kind of try and quality control that as a label for your band? Yeah, it's difficult to do that because that the music comes from the band, doesn't it? So mm. it's that whole cliche of a lot of bands, their first album is the best album because they spent five years writing it. Then mm. they get in the treadmill and the label and management and everybody else wants another album within a year. So you've spent five years writing one album. You're supposed to write a better album in six months while you're on the road. How can you do that? So, right. you know... Some bands manage to do it, you know, bands like Led Zepp or Soundgarden or whatever, I don't know, but um, it is difficult to do that. And now with social media, you're always, I mean, forget about that even being a second job in itself for band members or, yeah, or singers. Yeah, or, but I mean, that as well as the fact that you can't just disappear and write an album. You know, I mean, I mean, you can, you know, but it's a lot harder. Yeah, no, it is. It's really, the map, the, constant exposure thing is a real problem for for this kind of music for what we do it's um mm. you're always on display or having to churn stuff out aren't you so it's very very difficult is there like some kind of i i almost wish someone i almost wish that i like wasn't embarrassed to talk about it 10 years ago you know doing the social media stuff but i mean it's smart to have some kind of training in that really no no 100 percent. i mean Brutus, uh, Peter from the band, um, he works within the social media environment. So he's really, really smart about it in terms of, first of all, the messaging is always, you know, it's never a waste of time. It's always, there's always something relevant and it's always pretty cool. And then he, he knows exactly what time of day and what day to post to get the maximum uh, likes, et cetera, because he's trained in that. I, and I think more and more jobs in music are going to be about that. I mean, it's it's the it's the platform, right? Agreed. Yeah. I mean, hundred percent. Yeah. It's um, 
It's a sad fact. But we're going to have to do it. And if we're going to do it, we might as well have fun with it and learn to enjoy it. Yeah, completely. Yeah, completely. Well, Wes, thank you so much. It's been a great chat. I mean, just to finish off with, what's your sort of, what does your average day look like running the label? Yeah, it's not It's difficult because there isn't really an average day, you know. I mean, we do, we have set meetings during the week. Um, <clears throat> I'll do Monday morning. Nigel and I will plan what we've got to do for the week across the two labels because we have full-time hobby on the indie side. Mm. And then uh, I'll speak to Mies in the afternoon and we'll plan exactly what we're going to do with Hassel. Then on Wednesday, we have a whole company meeting at 11 o'clock for two hours where we talk about every band and what they're doing and the different problems we may be having, shipping, manufacturing, all that kind of thing. And then once a month, I have a finance meeting with my accountant. Um, so that's that's the basic framework. Then around that, you're talking to bands or you're talking to radio or you're talking to you know PR people or you know you're doing other things around that or you're listening to your A&Ring an album or doing an A&R meeting so we have a basic framework and then we we're fluid around that I mean we talked about like radio one earlier but there is still quite a lot of good radio and and we see a lot of internet radio stations cropping up in the last few years yeah I think I think I think things like what you do and um I was talking to the sap the I can't say this the yes what's happening guys the other day and it's what well, you're it's more and more important because i think that um you know people are really into music and bands are gonna have to find a way of discovering music because daytime radio one's not giving you that hit is it it's not not for the kind of music we're into so i think it's more important this kind of thing you know you've got a length of time to discuss it in depth if you want to if people want to listen to it they can and if if they're bored they can stop you know so that it's not like linear radio, which is obviously you've got a certain way of listening. I mean, you can listen back to it, of course. But And what, what advice would you give to, like, you know, the band from Tunbridge Wells right now who are ripping it up, who are sounding fucking amazing, but don't exactly know where to start in terms of putting out a record? Like, what, what advice would you would you give it a, a really good band like that that don't know where to go? Uh, well, hone your songwriting, so get your songs right, because your music's always the most important thing. Um. At the same time, get your live show, however you're doing it live, get that really, really tight and good. Maybe do that on your own for a year or two and become before you try and get any interest because if you try and go out there too early, you know, you might it might be too early and you might not be good enough. And then somebody might pick you up too early. So I'd spend a couple of years just learning how to do things yourselves. Maybe put a few tracks up yourself just to learn how it all works before you then approach somebody else to do it. And then and then approach somebody like me or whoever you want to talk, work with and, and try and get that person to then help you take it to the next level. I think what you say about not trying to do things too quickly, I, I think, is, is so important. I mean, everything takes time, right? Yeah, look, we Brutus is just starting to look like there could be quite a big band. We've been working with them for four years. And they were a band for two years before that. So that's six wow. years to get to this point. Yeah. I think Craig Jennings from um, Raw Power is a good mate of mine. He said something years ago, about three or four years ago, and he said it's all about five-year cycles. And I think he's right. I think you, you, you spend the first five years starting. Then you spend the next five years getting your career together and actually trying to earn some money. And then if you survive 10 years... You can start to think about longevity. 
makes a lot of sense, especially those first five years, which is where most bands will fall off. I, I, I think it, it takes that amount of time to realise what you are, what you look like, what it sounds like. Yeah, completely. I mean, look at Biffy. You could probably, the way Biffy did it, three albums on Beggar's Banquets and Independent, then went to Warders. They went from being a band that sold 15,000 records on Beggar's. Warders stuck a load of money behind it, but it didn't work at first. It took about five years for it really to connect. And of course, they're massive now. So that's, I mean, what are they, how are they 20 years in? I don't know, but I remember being like, I, f- I feel like I was 13 when I discovered them, you know? So it's their eighth album just come out, hasn't it? You know, so it's that cyclical thing. They're currently from that crop of bands, they're the last band standing, I think. Wow. Credit to them. Yeah, 100%. And credit to you, f- 15 years down the road. Yeah, cheers. You know, we still enjoy it, you know? <laughs> Good to hear. So that was Wes from Hassle Records. As always, if you've enjoyed the podcast, please share it far and wide. It's the most helpful thing you can do for the show. Cheers. I've been working all day for me, mate, on the side. Running around like a blue-ass fly. I've been working, yeah, I've been working all day for me, mate. Every blink minute I've been on the go. Up and down the ladder like a fiddler's elbow. I've been working, yeah, I've been working all day for me, mate. This is a Mighty Moon Media Podcast.